0: hello we're live we've been live for like nine seconds who knew (laughs) hello everyone we have a special we have a special show planned for you thanks for waiting an extra day for us to to share it was a it was a very busy week reporting on the moscow homicides and we're going to continue the conversation here tonight if you like our show please hit subscribe and like our channel. It helps us so much to continue doing these uh, live shows with you. Um, we have, again, a special show planned for you. We are going to be answering a lot of your questions. Our last Friday hit an hour. Many of you shared your questions and comments. We asked you to leave them. Well, John and I can John and I looked at all of them, all of the comments. And I want you to know that even though John and I can no longer, respond to all of our messages. We try, but it's just the two of us responding to everything. I want you to know we do read everything. And there were some great questions and we've picked out some really good ones for tonight. And then we'll also ask additional questions tonight. So with that being said, John, uh, John and I went to a a Santa Claus brunch today (laughs) with our families and your dad was <laughs> there
1: yeah, he and, and was. he
0: was talking about this case. I couldn't believe that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I couldn't uh, believe
0: that. You want to start with that?
2: Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, when my dad starts talking about true crime. You know what,
0: babe, I don't think your mic is on. I think it's a computer audio. Oh, it's not on. No, I think we're hearing. So if you switch to settings, if you go to settings here and then switch it to microphone, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. While he does that, I also want to bring attention to a pinned comment in chat. Uh, John and I have also been following along uh, the Monkey Vaughn case. Monkey is the nickname for Michael Vaughn, a five-year-old boy who went missing in July of 2021. So over a year ago. Uh, We've been following this case from the beginning. I've I've interviewed uh, Monkey's mother, Brandy, and this season I asked if there was anything our community could do to help. And she said that monkey loved giving Christmas gifts. Um, It's been some really hard updates for those that don't know. They've they've learned that four people that might be involved in, in monkey's disappearance and in his death, although they have not found his body. So with that heartbreak uh, they said that monkey loved giving gifts and they would love to give to the needy children in the Fruitland, Idaho area where they live. And so We have set up um, a wish list for kids or a gift. Uh, There have been so many things bought. Check out our community posts for the latest or our Facebook post about the latest updates. It's truly a miracle. We're calling this monkey's miracle. And I have a website to share more about that. Uh, Brandy, the Vaughn Neal family is so touched by what's happening. They're going to help distribute all of these gifts the week of Christmas to needy children in their areas. With that being said, do you want to do a mic check? Yep. How's
2: that? Can you hear me?
0: Yes, that's your microphone. Okay. Yes. And for those new to our channel, we this is Dr. John Mathias. I am Lauren Matthias. I'm a journalist. He's a forensic psychologist. And we are also husband and wife. So I slip sometimes and I call him babe. And our <laughs> listeners or our viewers have nicknamed him Dr. Babe. I don't know how fond he is of either, but he's uh, a good sport. <laughs> so I'm
2: I'm I'm adjusting, I'm adapting.
0: Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so with that being said, John, your dad brought up this horrendous crime at a Santa Claus brunch today. <laughs> yeah.
2: So right. yeah, my my dad never talks about crime so when he wanted to discuss even though he knows what i do he went, when when i when my father wanted to discuss this case i knew that everyone must be talking about this case because now he's interested in reading about it and let me tell you his theory of the case so i think <laughs> this is what happens when non-internet detectives start speculating about cases maybe. But so my dad's theory of the cases, and he claims that he read this somewhere. I don't know his source, but- Can
0: we share how old your dad is too? He's in his 80s. Yeah, he's
2: in his 80s. 80s. He's older. Late 80s though. he, he, He has a theory of the case that someone at the University of Idaho in the administration is tied to the mafia, And I don't know, he couldn't articulate it exactly, but I think his theory is that, and he claims he read this from a credible source, by the way, but the theory is that the administrator is somehow connected to the mafia, I don't know if it's drugs or something, but the administrator wasn't fulfilling his obligations, and so the mafia reacted by enforcing a hit on these four students, taking them out to affect enrollment at the university to harm the administrator.
1: <laughs> so
2: I I listened to my dad's theory and, you know, I, I tried not to laugh. I mean, I, you know, look, is it possible that his theory is correct? Yeah, I guess so. I guess every, every theory is possible. I wouldn't entirely rule it out, but I told my dad that I didn't believe his thirty was accurate because I, I think if it was a mob hit, they probably would have gone in with multiple people and probably they would have used guns because they would have been concerned about expediency and efficiency. And so my guess is that if this is some type of mob style hit, number one, they would have taken out everyone in the house because they didn't want any witnesses for sure. Number two, they probably would have been concerned about, getting in and out as efficiently as possible which would have involved a gun a knife would be highly inefficient if you're if you're trying to get in and out quickly and not get caught and they're obviously the crime scene is going to have much more forensic evidence with a knife so my dad kind of paused and he thought about it and he's like yeah that makes sense but again i i don't know i you know but the the point is that this case is really capturing a lot of people's attentions and attention and imaginations. And my dad getting involved is, is an interesting component or an example of that.
0: Yeah, exactly. This is a gentleman who's never even listened to our podcast. So.
2: (laughs) Right. I, I presume that if I wrote a book, my dad would read it, but he hasn't once listened to our podcast, nor does he know what we do. So, um,
0: Beesney said, "Doctor Babe's dad must clearly be a redditor."
2: Yeah, so maybe the maybe the mob hit theory is is circulating on Reddit, but anyway, um, I think, I think that theory can be disproved by the knife, but maybe not. I mean, anything's maybe possible not. here.
0: Anything's possible. With that being said, I want you to know that your questions coming in. Um, I have a wonderful mod that is um, submitting them and saving them for later. First. Like I said, we're going to go through the comments or excuse me, the questions that many of you left in the comments last week. And this is something we want to continually do. So always leave your questions in the comments for us. We read them all and they're they often make for great discussion the following week. So, question And we
2: we I should also mention we read emails sent to our website. We read we read as much as we can, but we just, we can't respond to it all if we want to have any time in our day for actual work, so.
0: Yeah, but look, we even print them out giant. <laughs> I married right. someone who still prints stuff out. I love it, and it is very handy. <laughs> so, this first one comes from Olivia Page. <clears throat> Questions about uh, this, uh, or and then, so, yeah, okay. I was going to say, well, do we want to talk about the recent press releases? But let's do those in a little bit. Sounds good. We'll start with these questions. Yep. Do you think that someone who could commit such a savage crime had to have been on some sort of drugs, uh, drug or drugs to heighten his mental state or illness of extreme anger or hatred with such signs of violence in each bedroom? Wouldn't someone need to some sort of substance to give an extra level of anger <clears throat> Excuse my cough. Thank you both for your professionalism and expertise, Olivia Page.
2: Yeah, so that this is a really fascinating question. When I first conceived of this crime, I, I wasn't really thinking about substance use or substance abuse being a component of it. But, but I, I when I heard this question, I immediately thought, yeah, I, you know, methamphetamines may have played a role in this crime for sure. I think we don't get a chance to talk about the relationship between substance abuse and crime that often, but let's, let's think about it here for a minute. Um, Amphetamines are generally speaking the most frequently implicated drug in violent offending. And the reason for that is that amphetamines, let's just call it meth, meth enhances arousal, enhances mood. It enhances a sense of invulnerability and grandiosity. It increases activity. It, Increases impulsivity, also people on meth are more inclined to care less about conflict or they're more likely to engage in in conflict uh and so i i it's not hard to imagine that this this perpetrator was using meth or some type of amphetamines some type of stimulant when he went into that house that would have created more anger and more aggression, and it would have, right? And and so I, I think it's an interesting question because there's definitely a correlation. And I say correlation because it's not causation, meaning drug use does not cause crime. Drug use is often seen as related to crime. There's a relationship, but it's not a cause of crime. In fact, there's a study by Hoken from 2014 the title of the article is Drug Use and, and Abuse in Human Aggressive Behavior. And Hoken found that there's a definite relationship between violence and amphetamine use, but the, the relationship may actually be driven by more underlying antisocial traits. So it's not necessarily the drug that's leading to the violence, it's the interaction between the drug and the personnel of the offender. So there's a combined effect here. The drug is often a catalyst. And, you know, when, when you picture a crime like this that's so brutal, I think amphetamines could definitely amplify that sense of anger or rage that's going on. And it could create kind of a frenzy around the crime scene. And since we don't know the nature of the crime scene and, and whether it was messy or not, I mean, presumably it was, uh, I think it's entirely possible that this is someone who may have some history of substance abuse. More than likely methamphetamines, uh, and so that's an interesting component to add to any profile that we're developing here. So, thanks for that question, Olivia. That's that's a great insight. It wasn't something I would normally think of for a profile off offhand, but after your question, I th- I think this could definitely be sort of a amphetamine-induced type crime, and at the very least, if if the if the murderer is using amphetamines it's going to enhance everything. It's going to make the anger more severe and it's going to make the aggression more severe. And and certainly this seems to be a very severe crime scene. So, so that's, that's a great insight.
0: Somebody, I, I, I unpinned it, but somebody thought that they might get high after the crime too. Is that anything you could speak to? Or is that.
2: Uh, I think, I think you'd probably be looking at more of, of, something like alcohol after the fact, if they're trying to deescalate, you know, perhaps they're using something that's more of a sedative rather than a stimulant. But yeah, I, it wouldn't be surprising to see the murderer in this case have a, a, a wide range of substance abuse problems. So okay. I think, you know, when you're, when you're using math. And you're committing multiple murders. My guess is you're, there's a lot of other issues going on. There's probably mental health issues. There's probably other substances that are being abused here. Maybe alcohol, maybe some type of anti-anxiety medications, maybe Xanax. I don't know. I, w- I wouldn't be surprised to see this person have a broad history of substance abuse, you know, starting in, in adolescent years, maybe.
0: Thank you. Next question from last week is from Tony Diaz. Could this killer now be distraught and mourning? Um, Could the killer be truly remorseful and feel guilt right now?
2: Yeah, (laughs) This this is another interesting question because it's actually something that Kaylee's mom mentioned in one of her initial interviews, that she was making a plea for help and she said to the public, please come forward. I know you must be feeling guilt. I know this must be, wa-. she said something like this. She, this. You must be feeling guilt. This must be weighing on your conscience. You need to turn yourself in and just get this over with because you're so guilt stricken. And of course, as someone who works with many criminals, my first reaction to that was, oh, man, that's kind of a misunderstanding of criminals in a way because psychopaths, if that's the case here, psychopaths often don't feel remorse and they don't feel guilt and they don't have a conscience. And so it's not hard to imagine that someone engaging in this type of, of behavior would be a psychopath or would lack a conscience. And in fact, their, their inclination would be not to come forward at all. They're, they're, they would actually probably gloat in these types of murders and see this as a, a victory of sorts.
0: Right. We had an interview earlier this week that hasn't been aired yet for a later date, and they asked you this sort of question. Um, and, and it I remember Kaylee's mom, that that kind of struck you, that she said, if you're feeling guilt, come forward. And yeah, you thought... No, he's not feeling guilty.
2: Yeah, and we could, you know, we could get into psych. We talk about psychopaths a lot on our podcast and in our work, and you know, we could spend a lot. We could spend hours talking about this this subject, but the gist of it is that many psychopaths have deficits in terms of processing emotions, and that's largely. Largely or partially attributed to the fact that their their amygdalas tend not to be as high functioning as normal people. In many cases, their amygdalas are atrophied, and so the amygdala, which is the seat of emotional processing, is defective in many of them. And that, and again, it's not the amygdala in and of itself is not going to be responsible. It's not going to be causative. It's not going to cause the the lack of emotion. It's going to be a host of things, including upbringing and family environment, but, but that's a factor. And so without emotion and without empathy, without remorse, psychopaths tend to be sort of a different breed. They tend to be, they tend to be, they tend to engage in much more criminal behavior than the average person. Let's say that.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Natasha McMillan. I'm so sorry. Uh, this happened to you, but thank you also for sharing your experience. I want to read that this, she says that she is a survivor of someone who was extremely high during the time of attacks on me. Meth use does cause a scary psychosis to happen. However, in my experience, I know the attacker had remorse afterwards.
2: Yeah, it's, that's, that's a great question. Uh, the, people that are more frequent meth users experience, short-term psychoses. And that's important because psychosis is also correlated with crime and more severe crime. And so in terms of assessing for whether someone is psychotic or schizophrenic, it's really important to recognize whether they're using drugs at the time of the crime or what their history of substance abuse is, because oftentimes you can have methamphetamine amphetamine induced psychoses, which which are temporary i mean there might be some permanent brain damage depending on how much the the drugs are used how much meth is used over time and there's also by the way not just psychosis but but regular meth users tend to be more paranoid so there's you get this combination of paranoia and psychosis and those are that's not a good combination for that that's a combination that's more likely to lead to crime than not if somebody is predisposed to to do that, but as she points out once the drugs once the impact of the effect of the drugs is worn off then then the remorse is more likely if the person's not a psychopath thank you and actually we'll we'll talk about this more a little later with some of the other questions, but there's a researcher by the name of Peter Langman who's looked at a lot of, he's done a lot of research on school shooters and mass murderers and Langman in his typology of, of different types of people that commit these crimes. He sees all of these crimes as committed by people that are either psychotic or psychopaths. And his, I guess his third category is what he calls trauma, trauma trauma-based shootings. There's trauma-based incidents, but but for the most part, Langman considers that he that many of these types of murderers are kind of on the spectrum of psychosis or psychopathy.
0: Thank you. Julie Holden reminded us, she said there were 932 people in chat to hit that like button. There are now over 1,000. We thank you. If you could, please hit that like button and subscribe if you like our show. We won't make you do anything unless you appreciate what we're doing. But thank you to those who do that. Uh, Julie Holden also posted the link to Peter Langman. And then we have our friend Scientific Skeptic that said hello. So just wanted to point that out too.
2: And Langman, let me mention Langman. Langman's classic work is is Kids Who Kill. It was published in 2009. He has since published a few other books about school shooters and mass murderers. And I'm actually going to be attending a, a workshop with Peter Langman next month that I'm excited about in January and he's coming to Nevada. And that's, that's going to be interesting. I'm, I'm going to look forward to that.
0: Yes, you are looking forward to that. All right. By the way, again, those that are asking questions, we are keeping track of your questions. We're <laughs> writing some great ones down <laughs> we're going to continue on with last week's questions that were in our comments first. This is from just another Smith but it was also a question that several people asked on our channel. Hold on one second while I cough. <laughs> I was sick this week, which is why we didn't do our live last uh, last night. So I apologize.
2: We were both sick and so was our <laughs> child. So it's been, it's been a little bit of a rough week, but we're getting through it.
0: Just another Smith asks, what about the possibility that the killer entered the house while everyone was out and was hiding somewhere in the house? It wouldn't be unusual for young adults to stay up until dawn. So the killer would need to be certain everyone was asleep to get away from this heinous act without alerting the others. And then I want to mention that there was another thread of comments that John and I both looked at that asked the same question. And Diane White mentioned that she had asked this on another channel and she felt uh, she was dissed or made to feel dumb. No question is a dumb question on our channel, Diane. So this question is one that many have. Um, and I think it's a solid thought, John, what do you think
2: yeah, I actually think it's a really clever question in a way because it, it and again, this is a question that really kind of forced me to think about for a moment because it's it's not something I initially would have believed, but then when I thought about it a little more, I realized that 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 this is a real possibility, and here's why because psychopaths. There, so let me let me give some history to this. Robert Hare, Hare spelled H-A-R-E. Robert Hare, he wrote a classic word called Without Conscience. It's one of the first books that summarized a lot of the research on psychopaths. But Hare and his initial work, which began <clears throat> roughly in the 70s, he was conducting some experiments where he was providing s- different stimuli, violent stimuli to subjects. And among those subjects were people that he would consider psychopaths. And he noticed something interesting that psychopaths showed a reduction in autonomic, um, activity when they, in other words, what he found was that psychopaths had their heartbeats actually went down. Their pulse rates actually went down when they were watched, when they were subjected to violence and violent images and, and this has been something that's been confirmed again and again. James Blair is a British researcher who's done a lot of work on psychopathy as well. Blair has also talked about how our nervous, the nervous system of psychopaths is quite different than the nervous system of a normal person. And that the, the typical, most of us, when we're in stressful situations, our heartbeats will go up, our breathing will accelerate. Psychopaths are the opposite. They actually calm down. Their heartbeats go down. And so, it. you know, so I picture, so in answering this question, I think it's possible that if you had a true psychopath, that they might be interested in getting to that home early and they might be sitting in a corner waiting and they're calm and they're collected and they're they're revisiting fantasies. And that's something Langman has also found is that many school shooters and mass murderers have... Recurring repetitive fantasies of violence and of the violence they're about to commit. So picture the killer in the house, getting in the house early, just like just another Smith said, so that they knew they could be in the home when the when the victims came back and they would be present and he would he, he would know that they're asleep. And if this is a true psychopath, there's, there's different psychopaths, by the way. There's primary psychopaths, which are more personality-based. And there's what we call secondary psychopaths, which are people that commit antisocial behaviors that have some traits of psychopaths, but they're mainly driven by emotions and they're mainly driven by situations. So those are some, sometimes called emotionally disturbed offenders. But it's, a, it's possible to imagine a primary psychopath getting into the residence with a lot of calm and a lot of confidence that they're going to commit these murders, so when I initially conceived this crime, I thought it was probably someone who was really agitated, somebody you know like the meth person, somebody on math who was really agitated and worked up and they went in there and they just went ballistic but this other scenario I think when you think about it this other scenario is a rea- is is a real possibility if you think that the calm psychopath who can regulate their flight or flight fight or flight response, and they can sit in that house for hours and they can fantasize about this crime they're about to commit in a very calm, collected way. I think that's possible. I don't think that's as likely, but I think it's an interesting scenario and I think it's definitely possible. So I, I, you know, people that are mocking that scenario and laughing about it, which they apparently did with Diane, that's unfortunate because I think that's very real. And somebody who truly understands psychopaths and how they respond to these high pressure situations, which is to say they respond calmly. Someone who understands that would understand that this is someone who could definitely sit in that house for hours and calmly wait to mutilate those victims.
0: Number four, last Friday uh, on our Hidden Hour Live, we discussed Elliot Roger as someone that you felt might be a similar a similar type of mass killer. He was an incel who wrote a manifesto before killing girls in California in sorority homes or sorority women in college. So this number, this question is from CC CC. <clears throat> Actually it's, an- oh, well, no, she does ask why at the end of here, what's fascinating. She says about Elliot Roger and let me, sorry, set the stage a little bit more. Elliot Roger, an incel, meaning involuntarily celibate. He did not like women. He wrote a manifesto expressing that, that he couldn't date, that he could never, I mean, he had anger towards this, these types of women that he chose to target. Uh, Murder by proxy also is something we were discussing. For those that didn't see last week, uh, someone can share the link to last week's live, and you can see all of that there. Cece writes, what is fascinating about Elliot Roger is that he was actually quite handsome. Sadly, he had a horrible attitude and outlook on life and his specific circumstances. Had Elliot put himself out there and had had a healthy attitude, without question, he would have had zero issues with dating or having a steady girlfriend. He had the inability to be humble. He didn't understand that even really good-looking people are regularly romantically rejected. What most of these incels don't understand is that dating and falling in love is about clicking with someone else who gets you. It's not about looks as much as it is is about having a good attitude, being positive, having a good sense of humor, and not taking life so seriously. I wish more young men realized this. In the end, the guy with the best sense of humor and interesting personality gets the date even if he's average looking. Look at Pete Davison, she says. Shout out to Pete. (laughs) Uh, Perfect example. Not good looking. That's an opinion. Um, But the ladies seem to like him. That is seemingly fact, according to his love life.
2: Apparently uh, very famous women like him, yeah.
0: (laughs) Right. Uh, But she says it's probably because Pete Davison is really funny, knows how to laugh at himself at life, and just rolls with the punches women prefer funny to gorgeous. And I will also add they prefer brains because you know what they say about big brains. Anyway, go ahead. Um, she asks, um, why is this or what can be done?
2: Yeah, this is, so this question really speaks to what leads to healthy relationships. What, what are the qualities of a healthy relationship? And I think one of the things that we find when we look at mass murderers or school shooters is that they're very isolated. They lack social skills. They lack the ability to communicate in a healthy fashion. There are many of them are very self-centered and narcissistic. Many of them have narcissistic disorders or features or traits. So and many of them, by the way, if we, if we go way back to, to early childhood, Many of them have insecure attachments, and that's something we've talked about on our podcast. But the issue is that these types of folks tend to blame others, specifically women. Many of them, by the way, feel damaged. They feel damaged as men. There's masculinity issues here. They feel like failures when it comes to being men. And so... Those are qualities, all the qualities I just mentioned, are, are going to be deficits in terms of developing healthy relationships. I, th- I, I like this question because I think a lot of these problems could be solved if somehow we could facilitate healthier relationships in those earlier years. And if somehow, I don't know when, but maybe as, young, as early as grade school, we start teaching our kids how to communicate better and what healthy relationships look like. And sure, you know, we're great at teaching math and English. And, but why don't we, why don't we, why don't we teach these kids about healthy relationships? Because that's going to be the foundation of everything they do in the future. It's well known that emotional intelligence is equally predictive of success as IQ or just intelligence overall. So, but we don't, we don't, emphasize those things. And these kids get lost in the cracks. They don't know how to connect to other people. They're often marginalized socially. They're social misfits. And yeah. And so I think Elliot Rogers is a great example of someone who, on the face of it, on the surface, he looks like he's a good looking kid. He he looks like someone who shouldn't have any problems connecting to to other people, to women specifically for dating. But he has immense problems because he, he doesn't understand empathy. He doesn't understand how to communicate. He can't be vulnerable. He can't be honest and direct, right? So all those elements that go into really healthy communication in relationships, many of those or most of those are lacking, not only in incels, but in mass murderers and probably in the killer here
0: thank you you know haley manigold uh shared an interesting comment here in response to that uh, she said hidden true crime is insecure attachments the root of psychopathy and criminal behavior because i have insecure attachment style thank you for sharing that haley
2: is it the root no there's there's no there's never a single root there's a number of roots so if you think about the tree growing from roots there 's many roots there's the other roots would be family culture, school culture, peer relationships parental relationships there's so many elements that go into this and let 's not forget genetic components that we know from some of the research by Adrian Rain that, that that there is a large genetic component to violence and to psychopaths and so that component doesn't change there's there's not a lot we can do about that but but insecure attachment <clears throat> can be a component when it's when it's combined with all the elements that we've discussed then it becomes a problem you can have a secure attachment and overcome that if you're willing to work on it and become somewhat vulnerable and open. And if you're really committed to improving the way you relate to other human beings, you can do that. There's always hope. So, so no insecure attachment, it, it might be a route. And many of the, the criminals I've worked with, it's definitely a route. In fact, I don't know if I've, so I've assessed maybe, I don't 600 criminals, 600 felons over the years. And I would say, of them have insecure attachments. So is it a root? Yes. Is it the cause? No. As you said,
0: there are several roots.
2: Yeah, there's always multiple roots.
0: Right, right. Thank you to those that have sent in super chats with their questions. We see those and we'll prioritize those. Um, Thank you. And we are keeping track of that. There was a question
2: you just pinned that looked interesting.
0: It wasn't a question, but a statement. Okay,
2: it was a comment.
0: Yeah, it was from, it was from Jean. She said, you just described me, but I am not a psychopath. I have been hurt and choose to go into my cave. I am also celibate because I don't have a relationship. So this is not just men. I am too empathic.
2: Yeah, for sure. So it's, I agree. There's plenty of people. There's many people that have insecure attachments that have empathy and they're relatable and they're not social misfits. So it, it, yeah, really it's, it's when you get to murder or when you get to sexual assault or when you get to serious crimes, it's always a combination. It's always like opening up a safe. Let's say that there's you, let's say you need six different turns of the, of the knob to get into the safe. Every one of those turns of the knob has to be met until, you know, to get to murder. Many of us might have a couple of those qualities or insecure attachment might be be one of the turns, but in the end, to unlock the safe, you really have to go through all the steps and it it requires quite a lot.
0: Thank you, Tom, so much. Dr. John and Lauren, you do a great job, keep it up. Thank you. All right, question number five from last week's live. Dr. John, I just found your channel and you have maybe (coughs) spoken previously about this, but my question is, what do you feel was the motive? And we did talk about that in our last live, but it's been a week. Things are changing in this case. We learn new things every day.
2: And so I think this question we should open up to our audience, because I think uh, one thing I like to say is that this isn't about me. I Yes, I've been doing criminal psychology for many, many years, and I, I definitely have some strong opinions, and I, I hope they're based on research for the most part. But I think the purpose of our channel is to really spark a dialogue with our our, our viewers and to really have a conversation about this because we, none of us know exactly what the motive is. We can speculate. You know, my dad thinks that the motive is some corrupt administrator <laughs> at at the University of Idaho. Maybe he's right. I don't know. Maybe he'll fool us all. But uh, what is the motive? Uh, I don't know. You know, I I, I think... I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, some research by uh, Peterson and Densley. They wrote a book called The Violence Project. I mentioned it last week. And in that book, they kind of walk through the various steps that are that are necessary um, to get to a mass murder, which I consider this to be a mass murder because you have four victims. And... <laughs> Yeah, people are people are, are weighing in already. I, I agree with all of yeah. those.
1: Jealousy, you keep talking. Girl-killed. I love
2: right.
0: I, I'm just gonna pin them all. You okay. asked us to let's... weigh in, we're weighing in.
2: <laughs> Rage. Yes, these are all good. Thank you. I we love our audience. You guys are right on. Um let's let me talk about let me talk about Peterson and Densley's steps, and then we can start to zero in a little bit on motive. But so in their research they believe or they state that most of these types of murders start with some type of childhood trauma or some type of childhood adversity. Now, I should clarify that that many of us, many people have gone through childhood trauma and adversity and they don't get to murder. And, and that's absolutely true. But again, you, you have to kind of click all the buttons to get to murder if that's where you land. But Going through childhood trauma, of course, in no way is causal. There's no causal relationship between childhood trauma and mass murder. However, they believe, and their research indicates, and you know, they don't have a big sample, so they they're they're quite quick to point out that their sample size is small. And there's not a lot of mass murders to study because most of them kill themselves after their crimes. But they state that. Childhood trauma often leads to anger and depression, sometimes depression and mental illness. And childhood trauma can be one of the foundations, and again, this goes back to insecure attachment, can be one of the foundations of of relationship instability and social problems. And so that's where, for them, they found that mass murderers all had some type of childhood trauma. In many cases, the trauma was quite severe. So. It's also important to note that mass murderers aren't just experiencing childhood trauma, they're experiencing severe childhood trauma. That's a distinction.
0: Hidden True Crime is prepping to record live podcasts on the road while meeting many of you along the way. We want to connect to all of our gems without language being a barrier. Enter the most trusted language learning program, Rosetta Stone. It immerses you in a language you're learning and it's available on desktop or app perfect for on-the-road learning. We're excited to learn Spanish, French, Italian, Korean, and more. Excited to speak, listen, and think in a new language through an intuitive process, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Join with us. Do not put off learning that language. No better time than right now to get started. For a limited time, Hidden True Crime listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today.
2: So the other thing I think this is my... Two cents here, but sometimes childhood trauma is highly correlated with shame and a sense of inadequacy. And those things also I think can be foundational if they're severe. Those things can be foundational in terms of later behaviors and in in this particular case, possibly motive. So for them, it starts with childhood trauma. Their next step is there's some type of triggering event. So what would a triggering event be? I think a triggering event in this particular type of case would be some type of rejection, some type of failure, some type of public humiliation, some type of emasculation. If we're talking about issues around masculinity, there's probably something here that has to do with emasculation that somehow this person's sense of masculinity was threatened if they were rejected. So, my guess is I've speculated about this, but, and this is speculation, but my guess is that I could, the scenario I kind of uh, work with is that, in a, let's, let's say one of the victims is in a fraternity and let's say Kaylee is in a fraternity party and somebody knows that she's single. Somebody knows that she's back for the weekend only person, maybe a fraternity person has had their eye on her and he goes up to talk to her, and maybe she makes kind of a dismissive, rude comment and rejects him, she probably won't remember that moment at all. She probably doesn't even know him. He's probably not even on her radar, but he feels rejected. He feels hurt and damaged by the interaction. He feels emasculated, and he's probably going to ruminate about that event for a long time. If you know, I could imagine this happened a month before. Or two weeks before, he's brushed off, he feels rejected, he's stewing over that, he's ruminating, and he's fantasizing about revenge. So that brings us to motive. So you have some type of trauma that sets the stage with shame or anger. Then you have a triggering event. The triggering event is probably something like rejection or failure or loss. And then you get to the actual motive for the crime, which There's, I think there's several here. I mean, these are mine. I I appreciate our listeners' opinions are excellent. But after the rejection, oftentimes the mass murderer will develop revenge fantasies. They will want attention. So there's this quest for significance. They want to, in, in many mass murders, that's not true here. But I think that's why there's some risk for future violence from this person because many mass murderers want to be on the stage. They want to be seen and recognized. So I think the first motive would have to be, for me, would be revenge. This person is is has been hurt and they're trying to get back. And so some of the research, and getting back to Lang, Langman, some of the research from Langman suggests that, and I'm putting this in my own terms, but that this type of murder is what's called a compensatory type murder, meaning that they're this is someone who feels very damaged and they're trying to compensate for that damage through an act of violence so they can repair their damaged self. So in other words, revenge and violence allows this damaged person to feel less damaged. They're yeah. making up, they're trying to make up for the their sense of inadequacy and shame and damage through an act of violence. And obviously that doesn't work. It never works. But nobody's going to say that this is rational. So so motive, ultimately, I think if you really wanted to dig down deep on motive, and that's since we're called hidden and that's what we're our job is to find what's hidden, I think you'd have to go to something like, an attempt to repair a damaged self. And I I don't mean just a, you know, we're all damaged to some degree. So I, I mean like a severely damaged human being that this is reparative. The motive is this misguided attempt to repair those childhood wounds and hurts through violence. So for me, motive would be revenge, power, maybe a little bit of fame at some level, but the real motive is this repair, this attempt to repair an extremely damaged self.
0: Thank you. Um, We're done with questions. And so we'll get to the questions of this audience, but I also want to give a shout out to someone who shared their thoughts on uh, or their theory as to what happened. (coughs) Excuse me uh, Maddie Garcia. So she, she shared this last week and I, John and I both agreed it was, it was a great theory. So we wanted to share one of our hidden gems. We call our viewers hidden gems. Maddie Garcia says, my guess is this person was one rejected from a fraternity or two rejected by one of the girls. He was, uh, rejected from the fraternity and ended up in ROTC military, which might have been, might have been that type of weapon or someone following any one of the four of the girls or four of the the students back home and sat in that parking lot until it was time to strike. The house itself is considered a house with fraternity fraternity members. I strongly feel the suspect killed Ethan first to put down a strong defender because he's a man and a potential threat to the suspect if he knew he was in the house. So taking out Ethan first lessens the possibility to get to all victims if his target was upstairs he wanted to get rid of the potential threat before going upstairs and if any screams happened Ethan would run up so he got rid of the biggest threat to the killer I think Zana woke up during Ethan being killed and then he killed Zana. his potential threat is down so now he can move upstairs to the target if one of the two girls were the target but why else go upstairs since there is no potential threat stopping him Just a thought and how it could have gone. I think he was parked in the parking lot waiting for the target or all of them to arrive and go to sleep. What a coward and to attack when asleep. Which to me shows a lack of confidence. Justice for the Moscow four. God, please let there be some DNA in the in that system. Pretty good theory, right?
2: Yep, that's I think that's that's an excellent interpretation. I I think. It's a it's a version of what we've been talking about, and um, we we appreciate those types of analyses.
0: Yes, yes, fish I didn't thank you earlier, but thank you so much for your um, support. And Esther, we're so glad you found us. I'm going to start reading um, some questions. Um, we'll start with those that sent super chats. Thank you so much. We'll prioritize those and we'll try to get to as many as we can. We have a lot of questions here. I've been saving. Thank you, Joe, for your support. How do mass murders and serial killers differ psychologically? Hmm. So we discussed the difference in our last live. We discussed the difference between mass murderers and serial killers. And you sort of described, this as more of a mass murder type of, crime. It, right. that this person could be a serial killer, we don't know, but it looks like a, a mass murder at this moment, this crime.
2: Yeah, so typically a, a serial killer is going to, not always, but th- typically serial killers will pick one victim at a time. <clears throat> There'll be a, a a lapse of time between each victim. They usually operate in the shadows a little bit more than a mass murderer. A mass murderer is, is more interested in publicity and kind of getting on the stage. But some of their underlying dynamics are similar. I think there's in many cases, there's that under, there's that that damaged self. There's that kind of underlying sense of shame and inadequacy that's that's always haunting them, that they can't shake. And so violence is is one way that they attempt to repair that sense of that damaged sense of self, but, but they, they tend to be a little different, you know, again, with serial killers, there's just, there's not a huge amount of research on the topic. So, so it's, it's not entirely clear what drives serial killers. Also I should mention serial killers and mass murderers, neither of them have a a completely valid profile that describes who they are and what they do. So there's enough variance, meaning differences between them that, I think we know that the behavioral analysis unit from the FBI is up in Moscow, uh, trying to decipher what's going on, and that's great. But I think they they would be the first to tell us that there's no one specific profile that's going to identify a serial killer or a mass murderer. That there's enough difference between them that it's hard to really, really categorize them and 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 figure out exactly why they're doing what they're doing and who they are.
0: Thank you. And thank you to Topsy. She says, you guys deserve a bigger audience. I'm going to share this on my socials as one of the best factual non-drama channels. Really impressed with you guys. Thank you. That is such a big compliment to us. Thank you, Topsy so much. Uh, Please do. If everyone could, could share our channel, it means a lot. Um, it's, It's a chance. Let people know it's a chance for people to ask a forensic psychologist live some thoughts on YouTube, Mm -hmm. something that is not often done, um, on YouTube, um, Susan D thank you so much for your support. Um, I was sent your Instagram message. I somehow missed it. I'm going to talk to John about those questions today and we will write you back because those are some great questions, but there are really good questions. Susan, we'll write you back tonight. So John, Susan, gave us a wonderful donation and has a a private message for us. So we'll, we'll write you back. Thank you. Um, clumsy, Claire voyant, um, don't thank you for your support. She said, this is a good question actually for me, because I've been in the media. I was a television reporter for (laughs) 10 years. She said, can mistrust with media and law enforcement and the public cause more chaos? Yes, it can. I was on News Nation last night with Ashley Banfield and we were discussing this very thing. And you can find that video um, posted. uh, I think I posted it this morning. Uh, You know, I don't think I don't think that the police are necessarily. Oh, my phone is. Oh, my phone is not sure about that. I don't necessarily think the police are inexperienced, but I do think they're inexperienced with a crime that is getting this much attention and how to handle it. And I do feel like their lack of transparency, uh, very few press conferences where reporters can ask questions, (laughs) just trying so hard to shut down speculation that it does the opposite. I don't think that it is helping the chaos. I think it's um, making more of it in my personal opinion. As someone that's not just been a television reporter for 10 years, but someone who spent half of my career in uh, much of the gem state, we are the hidden gems here, it's the gem state in Idaho. And so uh, five years in Idaho. And um, I do think it's uh, increasing chaos, in my opinion. John, do you have any opinions on this?
2: I think so. We talked about some of the elements of a healthy relationship, I I think- The same can be said about organizations, that healthy organizations, this is my opinion, and there's some research on this, by the way, but healthy organizations tend to be transparent. They tend to be honest. They tend to be open with information, and that's true in relationships too. So One of the keys, I think, to good communication with any human being, whether it's another person, the media, an organization, is to be transparent. And to tell people what you know and to be honest about it, and that gives you credibility, right? And so I think one of the problems here was that early on, the police, the Idaho police made a statement saying that there was no risk to the community and basically saying, don't worry, you know, even though there's been four brutal murders, you know, just move on with your lives, nothing to see here. And I, I think the problem with that statement is they lost a lot of credibility. If you're going to get that credibility back, I think you need to be transparent. You know, if if that transparency impedes the investigation or creates problems in the investigation, then by all means, I don't think they should be. But if if it seems to me, and again, I don't know, we don't know the investigation, but it seems to me that they're a little defensive. It seems to me that they're on their heels a little bit and they're trying to withhold information because they're angry that people are are pressuring them to find a suspect and they're not doing that as quickly as people like. And I could open a real can of worms here and point out that the, the we could talk about the press release yesterday where they, they threatened internet detectives with criminal charges. If, right, if if there's too much rampant speculation. I think they were actually talking about actual threats to potential suspects, but it's an I have never seen a crime case where the police in the case have said, have told people on the internet, essentially, that if you go too far, we're going to file criminal charges against you. And of course, I, I told you, I told you, Lauren, I said, well, wait a minute, aren't we, we're kind of internet sleuths, right? Does that mean, so is is somebody going to knock on our door and, and handcuff us? I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting thing. It's an interesting way to, to to address the lack of transparency rather than be more transparent it seems like they're going in the opposite direction and now they're threatening internet sleuths with criminal charges. I mean, I, I, that's, I don't know. I don't think that's healthy communication.
0: Well, I think one of the problems is we don't know what harassing means. Janet yeah. is saying some are harassing people, but what is, at what point, you know, what is that? So. And I uh, and I
2: agree with Janet that if I, I, there, there's always a fine line in Janet saying that some people are being harassed and yeah, that that's crossing the line. I think that there are, unfortunately, there are a lot of unethical YouTube channels or podcasters out there who will do anything for views and clicks and whatever. And they're, some of them are crossing lines and resorting to wild speculation and maybe even harassing some of the known suspects or people that are believed to be suspects. I, I don't know, but it's still for the police to do that, to say that publicly, is still a little troubling. I think they can, if they believe that, then they should do that behind the scenes. I think. I don't know if a public statement is necessary saying we're going to go after Internet sleuths, because Internet sleuths are a huge community, and uh, you know we consider ourselves to kind of fit that category as long as, as well as our listeners. And I don't think any of us want, you know, that we want to have the ability to speculate, but not unethically or wildly, and but yet we still want to be able to do that in a, in a fair you know in a in a constrained way and yet so it it i don't know i don't have the answer i think it's an interesting response again transparency i think solves this problem
0: one thing i think you brought up i think this this is an example of what i think creates um chaos this lack of transparency i was really excited to get the release, um, yesterday, the news release also, because they keep saying they're going to do a press conference. And the only press conference we're getting is a pre-scripted interview with the police chief where no reporter or, uh, media can actually ask them questions. So I'm aching for these press releases, just aching for them. And so I get it. And here's the latest it says, and the first three or four paragraphs are don't listen to anyone but us." Stop sleuthing or else you're going to, if you're harassing people and you're, you're going to get criminal charges, only listen, us, only listen to us, only listen to us, only listen to us. And then they don't tell us anything. And then that's it. That's the release. That's the release. Um, It's hard. It's hard when they're not giving us anything. And I, I, I think what they're not realizing is that creates more speculation. Right.
2: And the, I think that they're they're minimizing the collective intelligence as some of the some of the internet detective community or true crime communities, there's some really smart people that have found a lot of useful information on many cases. And we're very grateful for our community that's done the same. And so I, you know, I, I agree with Lynette. I think it was a little bit over the top. I, I think that if they're going to pursue criminal charges against some people that have crossed a line, that's fine. But do you really need to say that to the entire true crime universe I, I don't know
0: right and it also makes me worried they're not focused on the right thing like i know this i can only imagine how hard this would be but um maybe they need to put someone else in charge of calming the sleuth, like you know the university officials or somebody else and then just focus on the crime becky asked something thank you for your great question becky and and this is something that i find hopeful is um she asked, do you think this is going to be solved? Timeline. My answer is obviously, I don't know. I hope. Um, I hope. But one thing that I want to point out is this week, police at the bottom. Well, it was what is today? Today, Saturday. So it was a week ago on a Saturday release at the bottom. They slipped in um, the police numbers. You know, this is many people from the FBI, this many people from the Moscow police, this many people from Idaho state police, and they drastically switched the numbers without really pointing it out, which I didn't like the lack of transparency, but here's where I think it's hopeful. Moscow police department, their numbers have gone significantly down as being investigating on the scene and FBI numbers are going up to me. That means that the evidence has been gathered. That's the police department's job to gather all this evidence when you're bringing the FBI in, you're usually processing the evidence, um, or at least more of that. They have more resources to do that. What that means exactly, I don't know, but I think there's hope in these changing numbers. Let's hope we can only hope. So.
2: Yeah, I think it's a, a extremely positive sign that so many FBI agents have been have brought in, and the FBI is excellent. And I think they're gonna if if they can get to a suspect, they will as fast as they can.
0: Yes. Yes. More questions coming. I believe it's true. Is it physically possible to kill four individuals without any help from substances? I would say (laughs) it's possible.
2: Yeah. Uh, I I mean, so, you know, on that, on that question, I I should, let me make a clarification that, that Peter Langman makes in some of his research. He he often says, and, and this is, I think this is a great way of putting it, but Langman often says that this isn't, these people aren't just angry. They're not just filled with rage. They're filled with what he calls existential rage. And I love that because a lot of people, we everybody knows what anger is. Everybody knows what rage is, maybe to some degree. But, but Langman's point is that this is not normal rage. This is not just being angry at your parents or this is... This is the type of rage that ex- that that knows no bounds. This is the type of rage that is about a rage towards the world and towards life. It's just a it's a pervasive rage that's unconstrained. It's a limitless rage, and I I think a lot of us can't relate to that. This is sort of like adolescent rage on amphetamines or something. This is like I don't. It's hard to describe, but I, I like. I like Langman's distinction because this term existential rage, I think really gets to the, It's, it's this type of rage that's driving school shooters and mass murderers. It's not, this is not just being angry because you got an F on a test or you were rejected at a fraternity or whatever. This is more than that. This is being angry at everything. This is a seething rage that defines who you are. These are the type of kids that, in high school, you know, they, they're, they're the ones that are drawing really dark pictures of death and morbid scenes. And they're reading Edgar Allan Poe. I guess I shouldn't say that because I really like Edgar, I still read Edgar Allan Poe. So maybe that's not, that's not a good example, but they're, they're, there's a, there's a intrinsic kind of darkness and alienation that these kids hold, and they project that on the world. That's the type of rage we're talking about. And so I think that distinction is important.
0: This is a question from Janet. I would imagine the killer enjoying all of the media and the internet rumors, but will that satisfy him enough so he doesn't commit another crime? Or would this type of thing urge him on to another horrifying crime?
2: Uh, first, let's thank Denise. Thank you so much, Denise.
0: Thank you, Denise. We appreciate you. You've been such a loyal hidden gem and we we really are grateful for Denise. Thank you.
2: So in answering that question, I would refer to the, the latest press release that the police put out where they talked about winter commencement is coming up this I think this next week, right at the University Correct. of Idaho. And they basically and one of the put victims
0: out a, would have been ve- graduating. I believe Maddie would have been graduating. Yeah. Correct me if I'm yeah. wrong, anyone. I, I'm not quite sure if it was Kaylee, too. But yeah, very sad.
2: Okay. Right. So, so the winter commencement is coming up, and the police put out a statement to the effect that the killer's still out there and watch your back, essentially. In other words, they're saying the exact opposite of what they said at the beginning, which is that there's some risks. So to answer that question, I mean, the police, the police answered it for us. The police are basically saying that this is someone who could kill again. And graduation I don't
0: think, was today. Yeah.
2: Oh, today. Okay. So I don't, so there's a lot of ex- other people in town. Um, I think, I, I don't think, I think this would be a really bad time to murder other people, you know, because there's so many, so many, Law enforcement. There's such a huge law enforcement presence, but if this guy's if this murderer is arrogant enough and a true psychopath, I, I I would not be surprised if someone like that would tempt fate and take his chances just to get attention and and get back on the stage.
0: Thank you for answering that. And then I have a question from Patty G. Why kill them all? instead of just the target when she was alone. Like, and so let's say that the target is Kaylee, which is someone you've always thought was the target. And and you know what? And I want to say that too. You suggested last Friday that you believe Kaylee was the target. Mm -hmm. And it was that weekend after our live that we did hear, she had, uh, the, the worst injuries that she was, as you say, the term is overkill. And maybe we need to talk about that a little bit, but, um, Patty G does ask, why kill all four of them instead of just the target, which let's say it's Kaylee, uh, when she was alone?
2: Uh, I think we're going to have to, to answer that question, I I think you just have to kind of walk through a logical inductive process. I think we have to kind of go Sherlock Holmes here and think about about the steps of this crime. The killer's easiest access, access appears to be the second floor. My guess is the killer enters the second floor if the killer wasn't already in the building, which we talked we just talked about earlier, why that could be possible, but if the killer goes enters the residence through the second floor, the killer may have encountered Ethan and Zana, maybe they were stirring, maybe he saw Ethan and he he perceived Ethan to be a threat, maybe the killer didn't want to leave behind witnesses. For whatever reasons, the killer sees them. He might not have expected them, so he kills them to remove the threat. And he knows that he's his real target is on the third floor. So enters the second floor, perceives some type of threat, acts on that threat, then goes up to his intended targets. Maddie happens to be in bed with Kaylee. And he's probably surprised by that. He, he might have expected Kayla to be in her room. She's not. He probably recognizes that To for him to kill his intended target, that he probably needs to kill Maddie as well because he doesn't want to witness and because she's such, in such close proximity to the body that he probably feels no ch- choice. And by the way, since he's already killed several people at this point, it probably doesn't matter to him. That he's probably so worked up. And let's let's say, based on the earlier question, that he's he's in some type of uh methamphetamine induced psychosis and he's just going crazy. Uh it's it's not a big deal, it wouldn't be a big deal to him to to kill Maddie as well. So in a really heightened state of arousal, there's a much more likelihood that multiple victims would you know be, be killed as they were. And so so that's 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 kind of how I see the murders playing out that, that I really think in many ways, three of these victims could have been in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that Kaylee was the intended target. But if you think it through logically, if we put on our Sherlock Holmes hats, it seems to me that that's a scenario that makes sense.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Can you explain what overkill is the term overkill? I mean, we use it every day in English language. Oh, that was overkill. But uh, what does it really mean?
2: So overkill is criminals or let's say murderers. Murderers tend to have what we call signatures. A signature is the way a crime is committed. So if you look at a serial killer, oftentimes their signature, it's sometimes called a calling card. You know, you you see this in Hollywood movies a lot, right? That, and like in the movie Seven with Morgan Freeman, every every crime scene had a specific signature that they could relate back to the killer. And Overkill is a version of a signature. Overkill is when a murderer. Resorts to more violence and aggression than is necessary to subdue a victim or kill a victim. So, in other words, you can slit someone's jugular and kill them with one right with one stab wound. But when a when a murderer stabs, you know, the jugular and then the heart and then the chest, like when they when they when they when, they, when you get stabbed forty times, that's overkill because it's unnecessary. And so overkill becomes some way it becomes a way to assess the psychological characteristics of the murderer. In other words, you're trying to infer certain elements of motive and psychological characteristics based upon the way the murders occurred and whether there's a certain signature to the crimes, and overkill is part of that. So one thing we know about overkill is that a lot of times it involves a lot of rage, but I, I guess that's... That's something that would be obvious in this case. We've talked about it a lot. But the other thing that's often common to Overkill is a desire. And and I think of, for those of you know the show Dexter, I think of Dexter sometimes. Dexter's kind of my um, exemplar for a psychopath, by the way. Dexter and and uh anton um i can't remember his last name now from no country for old men but humiliation is another is often another element of overkill so if we use dexter as an example dexter sets up pictures of the victims in his crime scenes that his his crime scenes are highly staged and he's very meticulous but one of the things he does before he kills his victims is He wants them to acknowledge that they did something wrong. And his goal is not just revenge, it's also humiliation. So in all of his crime scenes, the victims are naked and they're subjected to sort of this reckoning where he puts up pictures of the victims. And so in Dexter, this goes beyond rage. This is about revenge, and it's about humiliation. So he's trying to humiliate the victims. So Overkill, that's an example of how Overkill might provide information about a, a murderer's motives.
0: Thank you, everyone, for your support tonight.
2: Somebody said they want Dexter to find this perp. Yeah, that would be great. I wish we could. <laughs> I guess I shouldn't say that because Dexter's, you know, I mean, he's a fictional character, so I can say it. But yeah, he, Dexter's like the only serial killer you can actually empathize with.
0: Yes. Everyone. Thank you so much. Um, John, thank you, by the way, for, for, I thought it was, um, really interesting that you again suggested it was Kaylee. And then we learned shortly after that she did have the most injuries. Um, we still don't know if that means, you know, again, we, we're, um, we speculate with evidence here. We don't know if that is accurate. Um, we healthy. we do healthy speculation based off of evidence. (laughs) And for those saying that there are a lot of awful hidden, uh, true crime sleuths, um, harassing. Yes. No one should ever go real life or harass anybody in real life. So we do not support that. Um, anyway, uh, one other video that people might want to watch. I just want to share because we have a lot of new followers following us along. And um, Dr. John, for those that remember the Patty, uh, Gabby Petito case, when Gabby was um, missing before anyone knew what happened, uh, we the, the, the night the Moab body footage came out, Dr. John did an excellent analysis of that body cam footage from Moab police. And I recommend anyone going back and watching that. If you're catching up with our channel, for those of you that are interested in this, uh, crime in this case, particularly, you might appreciate what John says and explores in that he actually, um, through, um, his research and studies, he actually, uh, could show you how the relationship was not loving that the Brian was a perpetrator. He said this, and a lot of people were upset at him. And that he also said um, that he believed the manner of death would be strangulation. It's a really interesting video to look at. Thank you, Julie Holden, for pinning that video. You can also find it under our Gabby Petito playlist. There aren't as many videos there as there have been in this case. (coughs) But um, we recommend...
2: My only regret regret with the Gabby Petito analysis is that I wish... I wish that body cam footage had been released earlier because I think there may have been a chance to have fully assessed the situation in more depth and that maybe she could have been helped.
0: As in when it happened. Yeah. They they
2: released the footage literally two or three days before her body was found. So she was clearly deceased by then. But if, if that footage had been really, nobody was talking about this as being a domestic violence Gabby Petito was being a domestic violence situation and and I was and that was my concern. So I think
0: Yeah, people kept saying, "Oh, but they're so loving." I remember you appeared on uh Fox discussing it and the anger said, "But aren't they loving? You know, all these videos and you said, "I don't see any love." I don't see I any it, love. I said it
2: <laughs> depends on how you define loving. Yeah. <laughs> if you define loving as possessiveness and control, then yeah, maybe, but that's, That's not how right. I define it.
0: Interesting comment, Brooklyn. Thank you for sharing that. Um, thank you. She's a licensed funeral director, has been for two decades. She has seen so many stablings. Usually it's two or seven times. Many wounds are not even, oh, many wounds aren't even punctured. This crime scene is definitely overkill. Thank you for that. Um, while we enjoy our time with our hidden gems, and we um, enjoy this conversation among friends. We clearly um, understand the depth of this tragedy, which is why we've uh, taken this case on and why we talk about it so much. So we we do hope there is justice. We hope they find this person, not just to get him off the street to not do anything again, uh, but but for justice and and for the families and for the students of the university of Idaho. Colette, thank you so much for sharing that. Dr. John's analysis on the body cam footage. There you go. There were a lot of great questions in chat tonight. I forgot to hit subscriber only. So they were even coming triple time (laughs) again. um, If we missed your question, leave it in the comments, John and I will go back. We'll read the comments and we'll discuss them. So We recommend you sharing your questions in the comments below. And then just a reminder, uh, (laughs) there is a pinned comment in chat. It's the website to monkey Vaughn and this monkey's miracle that we're working on. Michael Vaughn is a missing five-year-old boy. The case is still ongoing. Uh, but the news does not look good as far as Michael Vaughn returning home for Christmas. So if you could take a look at that help
2: one one quick I, I mentioned no country for old men earlier and pirate radio provided the name his his it's anton sugar i i want to say that just to <laughs> because, because i i want some closure on that but if if you guys want to know if if anybody wants to know what a true psychopath looks like anton schager from no which is no country for old man is is a Work by Cormac McCarthy, who's probably one of our great living authors, and it's a it's a really interesting read. But Shiger is, in many ways, the personification of evil. That he just comes and goes unknowingly and without warning. He just he just seems to appear and disappear at the most random times. He's always around. It, it's it's a it's a fascinating look at how a psychopath has no conscience, no remorse, and it's McCarthy's attempt to kind of portray, to personify evil, I think. And so so psychopathy, although I don't mention the term evil that much, I think that it's something we like to think about on our channel. McCarthy is interested in 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 delving into what that means through this character, who is a true psychopath.
0: And Colette, we hear you. She would love to see a Patreon chat about this case. We have one planned. For those interested in more in-depth um, conversations that John and I have at our dinner table together, you can go to patreon.com slash hidden true crime. And we have, a lo- we have our own Patreon podcast as well as our other podcasts on all podcast formats. And um, thank you, Julie Holden, for sharing Monkey Bonds. All right. Until next time we uh, are going live. We've always gone live with our hidden hour on Friday nights. We changed this because I'm sick. Forgive the coughing, but we'll uh, plan to go live again on Friday. We'll see you all there. We have a difficult time balancing our schedule because we are spouses that are co-hosts. So a lot of things come into play. So check on Friday or to see what time our live might be that night. We do our best to always, um, try to keep it around the same time, but it does vary, uh, week to week, just a bit. So we're hoping to get a time set in stone, but right now we're dealing with babysitters and, um, (laughs) being on news nation occasionally. So thank you so much. Good night, everyone. Thank you so much. And, uh, We'll see you next week.
2: Good night. Thank you.